Welcome to the first Drilling Deep of 2024. I'm your host, John Kingston. First of all, I want to warn you about something. When we get to our interview of the day, I'm going to be wearing different clothes. Long story. I'm down here at the Freightways headquarters in Chattanooga. We've had a lot of different meetings. I've had to wear multiple outfits and uh, record things at different times of the day. So I, I hope you'll give me some forbearance on that. Just like in 2023 and the years before that, we call the show Drilling Deep because you need to drill for oil to get it. You need, to, you need oil to make diesel, and you can't move a truck or a train without that fuel. Our guest this week is Diego Anchustegui. He is the head of a Mexican logistics company, and he is also the head of a, the Mexican Intermodal Association. Uh, he's here to talk about the growing role of intermodal in Mexico. If we're going to have a reshoring of offshore manufacturing operations back into North America, a lot of things that are going to get made and a lot of components going down to Mexico are going to need to go on rail. And he's here to talk about how intermodal growth is needed to make that reshoring work. It's tough right now to figure out what to think about the current diesel market. Since I last recorded this opening chat for Drilling Deep, which was before Christmas, the cost of diesel as measured by the CME Commodity Exchange is down just about 10 cents per gallon not counting today as I'm recording this. We'll get to that in a minute. The DOE diesel price, that's a retail price that is used for most fuel surcharges, is down about seven cents. And yet, we've had big swings and big developments in the markets over these past few weeks to go a relatively short amount of, of, of time, not short amount of time, a short amount of numbers on the price scale. And note that this relatively modest decline has happened against the backdrop of the plunge in shipping on the Red Sea, and the Suez Canal. That adds as much as two weeks to ship transit time that might have been used to, that might have used the canal in the past, particularly for oil coming out of the Middle East and headed to Europe. It has the impact of taking oil and sticking it into inventory for that amount of time, and that is a, that's, a, that's essentially a restriction on supply. And yet the trend overall in price has been down. Though as I record this, the futures price of diesel is up more than seven cents per gallon today on the CME Commodity Exchange, and Red Sea issues are viewed as the primary reason. There are still some factors working to offset that. Yes, it's starting to get cold in Europe and parts of the U.S., but up until now, the winter has mostly been mild. As a result, inventories of ultra-low sulfur diesel in the U.S. have risen, and as this chart shows, it's risen by a lot. It's close enough that I think we can say that they are pretty much back to normal for this time of year. And when you look at that upward slope in, the, in the, those numbers, in those inventories, I really didn't think we were going to be able to say that anytime soon. The big squeeze, I think you could say, is over. The short-term, the monthly short-term energy outlook of the Energy Information Administration, which comes out usually at the start of every month, sees a mostly balanced supply-demand market for crude oil this year. It should be noted that the EIA is, again, very conservative on estimating U.S. oil production growth, but they also completely missed last year's surge. However, what they don't see is a fallback in U.S. production in 2024. The point here is that it's likely to be another year in which U.S. production works to keep lids on markets. So maybe all that is why one of the world's most important waterways for petroleum may largely be out of bounds, or I should say increasingly out of bounds, but we still don't have an oil price spike. 
It could happen, but revel in the fact that it hasn't happened yet. Moving on here now on Drilling Deep, I met Diego Antistwiggy a few weeks ago at the Benish Conference on Private Equity and Transportation in New York. It's always one of my highlights of the year. Terrific gathering. Diego is the Chief Commercial, uh, Commercial and Operating Officer of Transportes ESO, but he is also President of the Mexican Intermodal Association, known in Spanish as the AMTI. And given how much talk there is about reshoring and nearshoring, and the, bond, and the bonds between Mexico and, and the U.S. and Canada as well, we definitely want to have him here on Drilling Deep. So, Diego, welcome to our podcast. I'm, I'm glad, very glad to be here, John. It was a pleasure to meet you in New York. As you mentioned, the Benish Law event what, was a wonderful event, and I'm really glad to be here and to talk a little bit about what's going on in Mexico. And like I said in the ben, Benish Law Conference, it's Mexico, it, Mexico is a hot thing right now. So it's a prettiest girl uh, right now. And I think it has a lot of what to do with what's going on on nearshoring and what we're going to see in future growth for transportation on, on all modes. And the growth is going to be spectacular coming from now in the future of Mexico-US. First, I kind of wanted to set the ground. Can you t talk about EASO, who is your private employer, and then AMTI, which is the trade association which you are now president of? Yeah, so Transportes Astro is one of the biggest logistics uh, trucking and IMC companies in Mexico. We are the largest IMC, Mexican IMC, and basically we have been around for 50 years. It's a family-owned company. I was part of, I'm part of the family. My grandfather started the company about 50 years ago, so he was a truck driver, and like most trucking companies, he started buying trucks and growing the company. And essentially right now, what ASO is, is a logistics company and, and we have four main revenue types. We have intermodal, which is our biggest revenue types. On intermodal, we do a lot of cross-border. We do a lot of cross-border with the BNSF. We do a lot of cross-border with the CPKC and, and, and with Ferromex. We also have intra-Mexico intermodal. Then we have our OTR division, which our OTR division is only focused on, on south East of Mexico, Merida, Cancun, Villahermosa. We do a lot of Monterey to Mexico. We do a lot of Guadalajara to Mexico. Our third main biggest division, it's our truck brokerage division, which our truck brokerage division, it's mostly an overflow from what we have on, on our other divisions. And we also have a, a dedicated division, which dedicated in Mexico, it's a little bit different because we have so capacity strengths that are dedicated we get paid uh, a fixed cost whether the, the truck moves or not. And it's like having uh, a truck of their own for the, the customers. And and well, the ASO has had a wonderful history, but it has grown spectacularly the last years, mostly due to intermodal. And what we have done on intermodal has changed the landscape of what we do on, on, on Mexico and intermodal. It has exploded the growth of intermodal in Mexico, and we keep on doing that in the future. We'd like to talk ourselves as as this might seem a lot a lot confident, but we like to mention ourselves like a very small JV hunt, Mexican JV hunt. We try to focus on the revenue types, what they're trying to do, and try to replicate them here on 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 Mexico. Well, that's a very understandable analogy. So, uh, you know, I went to the Benish conference as you did uh, about a month earlier. I went to Rail Trends. I think you said you were at Rail Trends as well in New York, and and I walked away from really both conferences with the distinct feeling that that intermodal in general, not just in the U.S., but in North America, had had a pretty good 2023, and by the end was gaining market share. 
And a lot of that may have been you know, capturing trade coming out of Mexico, or I shouldn't say coming out of Mexico, but between Mexico and the U.S. And that I also got the sense that the, the Kansas City Southern CN deal kind of forced everybody to pick up their game a little bit and that it had benefits beyond the merger that other companies started to, re to react to it and improve their intermodal service between the two countries. Is that kind of a good summary of what you heard over those two meetings? For sure. I think Mexico intermodal, and we talked up a, a lot about this, is Mexico It's on an infancy level when it comes to intermodal. So when you see the trade volume that's going on between Mexico, U.S. and, and Canada, overall intermodal has a very small percentage of the freight that's being moved. So intermodal has a lot to grow, a, a lot of growth happening, and, and there's going to be a lot of growth in the future because we have a lot of conversion to be made from trucking into intermodal. So yeah, this year overall for intermodal in Mexico was great. Intermodal on, on the international boxes, th there's a lot of growth. Intermodal intra Mexico, there's a lot of growth. And intermodal cross border between US, Mexico, and Canada has a growth that, that wasn't that great, that was around 4%. But we do expect that growth to, to, to keep on continue growing on the next years. And we definitely see an opportunity there. How, how much of the, the intermodal, I mean, I'm assuming most of the intermodal growth is going to be manufactured products, project, products coming out of Mexico, going to the U.S. But I'm also assuming that there are products that can go into Mexico, out of the U.S. or Canada, maybe unfinished products that then get final manufacture in Mexico and then come back. So what kind of, is kind of the mix you see going forward? So right now, what moves mostly moves on intermodal between Mexico and, and, and the U.S., it's mostly automotive. But we see a big opportunity of, of FAK products. We see consumer goods. We see all type of products, grain and all type of products switching from truck to intermodal. And the big issue right now in Mexico is that we have a big capacity strain. So not like in the U.S. where, where truck markets had to go down on rates because there's a lot of overcapacity right now. In Mexico, it's completely opposite. So if you come to Mexico, you're going to see a different story. You're going to see the shippers not having the power to, to have capacity available. We have around 50,000 drivers missing in Mexico right now that, that we're that we're not being able to produce fast enough. And 50,000 drivers in Mexico, it's a big deal because you're not talking about the fleet sizes that you have in the U.S. So we have a lot of issues getting capacity through. So right now, the shippers are looking for other opportunities. So Intermodal rises as the big solution regarding this. Intermodal rises as the solution for the capacity issues. Intermodal rises as the solution for the security issues in Mexico. Intermodal rises as the solution also for, for the environmental issues and, and, and for price issues. So we are going to see that 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 big growth and not only on, on what you mentioned, not only on manufacturing here, but on overall all the volumes. We see customers coming to intermodal uh, just about everything. And, and we see automotive, we see consumer goods, FAK, we see rains, we see a lot of a lot of what used to move over the road switching to intermodal. And and I loved, John, your, your comment about the CPKC merger. And I think that that did came up to steer things up. And I think it, it made all the railroads uh, start thinking about solutions of what to do in Mexico. I, I, I always think that competition is always best for for the shippers and, and, and for overall the, the logistics community. So that did steer up some things and it's making every one of us thinking about how we are going to improve our intermodal solutions. 
Let's go back to the, you know, we at Freeways, we don't like to use the term driver shortage, but we'll talk about the 50,000 missing drivers. You know, in the U.S., the barriers to entry to driving are relatively low. Of course, obviously, you have to have a CDL. You need that training. But drivers do come in and go out of the field, you know, fairly easily flowing. doesn't sound like that's the case in Mexico. Are there, let's say, government barriers to growing the driver workforce that are not present in the U.S.? So, for example, the average age of Mexico, it's a big advantage for Mexico, and we're 28, 29 average years of age. But when you see the driver age, it's going over 40-something, the the average. So we're not seeing, as well as the U.S., we're not seeing the younger population getting to trucking. But in Mexico, it has a different thing going against it than in the U.S. The the thefts in Mexico have grown over 10%, the hijackings in trucks, and they're becoming a lot more violent to the driver. So that... That, that that's a big disadvantage. So a lot of drivers or possible drivers are not wanting to get into the job because they see it as a risk for them and their families. And 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 we're seeing drivers getting killed on the road. We're seeing drivers uh, get, getting kidnapped on the roads for 24, 48 hours until they get freed. So, so that's a big issue that we have to solve here in Mexico. Security has to get solved. On the other hand, it gives a, a, a big opportunity for intermodal because an intermodal, the the, in, the the level of, of theft, it's less than 0.05%. So we do see a big benefit on intermodal there, but it has to happen and we have to get solved that. Also, a big issue with getting more drivers and more trucks for capacity is that the average age for, for a truck in Mexico, it's, it's higher than 20 years old. So imagine that as an average. Then we must have been truckings running that are 1940s or, or 1950s. So we have a very old average age of trucks that we need to solve that situation immediately. Because as you know, if you have very old trucks, they're not going to be running all the time. And that's another factor that we need to solve. What is the structure of the Mexican rail system? How, what is the role of the government? Obviously, uh, when, like when, in, when, when, the, when Kansas City Southern crossed into Mexico, who owned the tracks that they were on? And when, when CN bought them, were they buying just trackage rights or were they actually buying actual track? So it's a concession. So, so that's very important. So in the U.S. and Mexico, it's very different because the railroads are a concession that the government gives them. So they're giving the, so when the CPKC bought KC, they were buying the concession out of, of the KC. They're, they're not buying the railroads and the rail. It's, it's owned by the government. The rail terms are fairly large. For example, the, they have a, a concession for over 100 years. So there's still a lot of time for that concession to end. And it mostly, or, or, or what we think is that they're going to be renegotiated and they're going to keep on going. But that, do, that does change a lot of the situations between how the railroads work with the government and the, like the Mexican STB, that changes a lot because they do have to find solutions for, for the suppliers, for the shippers, and they do have to follow certain rules that the railroad in the U.S. Does, does not have to necessarily. So it makes some challenges for the railroads, but overall it has been working out perfectly. And when we see the the railroads from government change to, to private entities, we have seen a spectacular growth as it happened in the U.S. So the railroads have been doing a great job on on, on creating better services, on growing revenue, great growing services from the rail and everything. So we do see it as a good thing that they are that that they're privately owned. 
Have they moved out, let's say, 100% of the trackage into private hands via concession, or is there still a significant percentage of government-owned track? There's, it's not significantly, but right now, Mexican government, the, the Mexican president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, started uh, new rail services, which, in my opinion, it's always great that a, uh, that a country starts new rail services, but they're being uh, operated by the government. So it wasn't uh, that before, but right now, the new services that are being opening, opening like the Tren Maya, and also the Transismico, which is going to connect the Gulf Coast with the Pacific Coast, they're going to be operated by the government. So we, I, I don't specifically like that. I think they're better off privately owned. But most of what is moving by freight right now, it's privately owned. So you're obviously deeply involved in Mexican logistics and Mexican rail. What was your reaction to the Kansas City Southern Canadian National Deal? So at, at the beginning, I was I was fairly surprised. And when we started seeing that the CN and the CP all were bidding on this railroad, it started making sense. So I do think that it's going to be the last big railroad to be sold in the future. I don't think that we're going to see any mergers happening from the East or West Coast railroads in the U.S. So it made perfectly sense for or it made perfect sense for a Canadian railroad to start opening this service. And right now, I think we are we we. As a consumer, as, uh, as as also looking for the shippers, I do think that it's a big benefit to have a railroad that's connecting three countries. They did buy it for a lot of money. I think it was like 28 times EBITDA. So, so it was a lot of money to be put in a railroad. But I think that just mentions the big benefits that they're seeing in the Mexico market and the big benefits that they're seeing from new shoring. And I think they have talked a lot about what they're going to convert in the next year. So they talked about 50,000 trucks converting into from trucks to intermodal. And I think they have the, 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 the table set for them because I think that if you look at the capacity issues in Mexico, they're not going to have a lot of issues converting that freight into intermodal or converting that freight into rail. So I think it was a good decision for them. I think we're going to see in the next years how, how, how the investment turns out. But... At the beginning, I was surprised, but right now, I think it was the best choice for them to, to, to do it. And I think overall, the rail, it stirred things up and it made uh, the railroads focus a lot more on Mexico, which is a, a very good thing, a very positive thing. All right. So let's stir things up a little bit. Let's say you're a salesman for Kansas City Southern Canadian National or Union Pacific or really anybody, any of the big railroads. And you go to a shipper and you say, OK, you, you need to get your widgets to the United States. Right now, you're putting them on a truck. Let me tell you why you should put them on a train. Give me your pitch. So first of all, you have capacity. So so capacity is going to be very important because moving or switching from rail to from truck to intermodal is going to give you a lot of capacity. The next one, it's price. So we have around 20% cheaper rates than, than over the road. And that conversion makes it a lot more easier. And the third one is definitely security. So, so security in Mexico, as I mentioned, is going up, but security of rail in Mexico is going fairly down and, and fairly quickly. And the fourth one, and for me, it's very important, it's it's environmental issues, right? So rail, it's about 75% cleaner than over the road. So I think you'll have four very big advantages on why to use rail. And you have only one disadvantage, which the disadvantage is that it takes more time to move it by rail than to move it by truck. But that disadvantage is a small disadvantage when you compare it to the big four. 
and also how the railroads have been handling or how trade has been handled over the past years. If you see the rail times that to cross the border, it has been going down. So right now, a Monterey with the new service, a Monterey to Dallas, a Monterey to Chicago, it might take five to six days, which is pretty, pretty impressive. And when you see the congestion that's going on over the road crossing through Laredo by truck, and you compare both, the time is pretty equal. So I, I, I don't see that, that big disadvantage that's time, taking a lot of consideration. And I think the four advantages, main advantages, is going on. And I did want to focus a lot on this conversation on the first one. They don't have capacity. So the shippers that we talk to do not have capacity to send the freight into the U.S. And that's just because it's, it doesn't make sense to have a truck all the way empty from the U.S. to Mexico. If, if you think right now of, of the, the trade between Mexico and the U.S., about six loads are going northbound for every one southbound load. Some say it's four to one, some say it's six to one. So you have all that capacity or trucks moving empty from the border down to Mexico so they can, they can, have, uh, they can grab another load. When it comes to intermodal, it's a lot easier, a lot cheaper to send empties back down than trucks. So there's a lot of advantage working for that. Yeah, that's a lot of deadheading going back into Mexico. A lot of deadhead. And that is changing Mexican logistics. So when you see the, the new shoring and you're going to see that big increment of, of freight going up, which they expect that freight market in Mexico is going to grow in the next years around 12%, 12% more trucks. That's just a, a, a big issue. And going deadhead all the way down to Mexico, that's just very, very expensive. And another thing that we do want to talk about is there's capacity for, for drivers and there's capacity for trucks. But the capacity at the border and the capacity for the highways, when you look at the highway from Monterey to Laredo, it's a two-lane highway. I still cannot believe that. That's our biggest highway in Mexico, the most, the most important highway in Mexico. And you see it as a two-lane highway and, and it's not very safe and everything. It's very impressive. So the taxpayers are paying for the highways and there's not a lot of money for, for a lot of highways infrastructure. And while the rail infrastructure gets paid by privately owned companies. So for the government, it also makes a lot of sense to send more freight from, from the highway to the rail. I'm going to ask you one last question. How real is the nearshoring revolution or um, that, that, that we talk about? I mean, it's, it's, it's talked about a lot. I guess there's data. Data can be kind of hard to measure. Uh, is, it, is it real? Is, is, it, is it reshoring or nearshoring or... Or how big a factor is it? I, I, I do think it's real. I don't think that China is going to lose a lot of volume or, or Asia is going to lose a lot of its volume. I think that they are still going to be a major player on the trade between between U.S. But I do think that nearshoring is happening and we see it every day with, with the volume of factories starting to open. And we see a lot of Chinese companies entering and setting shop here in Mexico. We see the Tesla Gigafactory setting up in Mexico. We see a lot of these factories coming up in Mexico. But I do think as, as Mexicans, we have to be cautious because we can either hit a home, hit a home run with, with this new shoring or it could be just an idea that didn't root to its true potential. And I think we do have to do a lot of things and a lot of work like infrastructure, security, we have to find uh, the, 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 the correct education for people to be ordered to grow in Mexico in order to, for us to hit a, a, a home run. 
we are the neighbors of, of the biggest country, the biggest economy, the, the, the country that's always growing and everything. So we have to take an advantage on, 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 on a safely manner, on, on being cautious on how we do it. And if we do things correctly on, on the correct matter, I think it's just a matter of time when we're going to see a much larger uh, investments coming into Mexico. Well, obviously, if for that to happen, rail is going to have to play a pretty big role, isn't it? Rail is going to have to be the most important role. If if rail or other modes of transportation don't get their heads incorrectly, Newshore is not going to happen. I see transportation as the most important thing for Newshoring to happen. I, I, when we saw what happened with COVID and we saw the international boxes not getting the, the correct uh, freight from Asia to, to the West Coast ports, I don't want that to happen with Mexico and the U.S. I want it to grow and I want it to work out efficiently and I want it to be as cheap as possible for the shipper or the, the as cheap as possible for the consumer if the U.S. If we start seeing a capacity issue in Mexico as we're seeing right now, it's just going to get more expensive to bring in from Mexico than from, the, from, from Asia. So that's not going to work. And the solution that railroads have in their hands is to make it as cheap as possible so the consumer can have it and bring it from Mexico to the U.S. We want to thank Diego Entestegui. Hope I got that right, Diego. Pretty close, I guess. Um, Pretty close. For being being our guest here today on Drilling Deep, Uh, Diego is president of uh, EASO in Mexico, and he's also president of the uh, Mexican equivalent of the Intermodal Association. So, Diego, I hope to see you uh, later in the year at the Rail Trends and at Benish again. Sure, I will be there, and I really appreciate, John, the time. I really appreciate everybody taking the interest in Mexico and whatever we can help you on, whether it's the Intermodal Association and getting to know the railroads and what we're doing, or or on more on the private uh, company, we are at your service. Okay. You have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightways. You can find us on all the leading podcast channels, including YouTube, if you're watching us. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.